those of you that enjoyed these podcasts, please submit a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps draw other people here. Also, if you like this, forward this to your friends, have them sign up to the Substack distribution, things I didn't learn at school, or become a paid supporter. That helps us too. Thanks so much. Welcome to Things I Didn't Learn in School. My guest today is Alexander Vanyakov, who is an eminent heart surgeon in Moscow, who is in the middle of the COVID crisis. And he's sharing an unbelievable story about the use of volunteers in this hospital. Alexander is a very wise person, but he's not a fluent English speaker. So to create this specific podcast, we translated his words into text. And then Dr. Yuri Brozgol, who is a pediatric neurologist in New York City and a friend of mine's and a friend of Sasha's, was kind enough to then do the voiceover and enact, if you will, the words of uh, Dr. Vanyakov. So thank you to Sasha Vanyakov. Thank you to Dr. Yuri Brozgol. Let's dive in. Who are you? How'd you end up in your position? Basically, what's your story? I'm a doctor and I work in an interventional department of a Moscow hospital. As it is known internationally, I am an endovascular surgeon who works directly with problems in the arteries of the heart and head, legs, or any other organs in which arteries play a crucial role. I'm also the head of the department, which consists of 19 staff members. And we conduct about three and a half thousand surgeries per year in our unit. That is a lot of surgery. And do you usually lead the surgeries? And how many are you personally operating on? Some, yeah, no, what, 500 or 600. Alone, I conduct about 500 to 600 surgeries on my own per year. Uh-huh. And my job was very consistent up until March 2020, when I went away on a skiing trip, and then came back to find myself without a job, my conventional job, so to speak, because our entire hospital was converted into a COVID hospital. And I was a little bit lost because everyone was busy, but I couldn't figure out in what ways I could help. I actually enjoyed the first couple of days because there was a significant decrease in the workload. (laughs) But at the same time, everything around you is crashing and burning and you understand that something needs to be done. So I reached out to see how I could be more helpful. But since I'm not a therapist, a pulmonologist or an emergency physician, my help consisted of me going to COVID meetings about the quick transformative nature of the virus. And it became obvious that every department was complaining about their lack of helping hands and staff working in the overcrowded hospital. I suggested that we bring in some volunteers. Wait a minute. And but just before we get to that, your hospital, number 52, I think, yes. had the most COVID patients. Why were they all at your hospital? And when you stated that you ought to just reach out for volunteers, how did colleagues react? Uh, well, initially, there were three hospitals that accepted COVID patients in Moscow because they thought that that would be a sufficient amount of beds. Mm-hmm. We were among the first hospitals to be transformed into a designated COVID hospital. And this was decided by the Department of Health. But we wouldn't have it any other way because the head doctor at our hospital is always very quick to jump on a new opportunities with all hands on the deck. Mm-hmm. 
And when I mentioned the volunteers, everyone was fine with it because the volunteers in question would only be necessary for helping with chores and physical aspects of the job, such as lifting things, cleaning, distributing donations and food, but not actually interacting with the patients or providing medical assistance. To our surprise, a lot of people responded to the volunteering opportunity and a lot of donation organizations started to filter in. So everyone was really on board with bringing in the volunteers. And you'd say, though, that volunteerism as a concept in Russia is a little bit less popular than it is in the U.S., though, of course, this is shifting some. As far as I know about Russia, that sounds true to me. Our volunteers are usually people who work with critically ill children or ICU. Mm -hmm. But it is very uncommon for a well-established hospital to all of a sudden meet and accept volunteers. I have never heard of such case. I think we were probably one of the first hospitals to implement this volunteering system. That's fascinating. Did you have this idea for a long time or is it something that occurred spontaneously? I have always wanted to make the system a little bit more open and accepting of new volunteers, mm -hmm. although I may not have necessarily called it volunteering opportunities, mm -hmm. but I have always wanted to expand the system to include visitation and normalize help from people, relatives, mm -hmm. or those who don't have relatives to have some kind people visiting them in order to break up the paternal model of just patient and doctor relationship, where patients basically end up in a prison where they are forced to accept medical attention. For the past three years, many staff members have expressed their concerns and desires to change, mm -hmm. allowing visitation from family members or relatives into the ICU emergency room, which was actually forbidden for as a tradition in the Russian system. There was a lot of protest against this idea from the higher ups uh -huh. at first, but eventually they eased up on the idea. However, things degraded to their original ways once the quarantine started. Uh -huh. Again, the first time I mentioned the idea of getting volunteers, I did not necessarily imagine the humanitarian side of it. I simply needed a solution to get more hands involved in order to ease the overwhelming workload that the staff was faced with. Where can I get more hands? So I made a post about it on Facebook, which received a whopping 6,000 shares or reposts. And in the first day, I received 400 phone calls from people saying that we are ready to come help. What should we do? Oh, wait a minute. How many friends do you have on Facebook? And after you made this announcement, you got 6,000 responses. That's a lot. It's probably pleasantly surprising to hear that, the spirit of volunteering being so strong there and contradicting a little bit the stereotypes, I'd say, of Russia. Right. At the time, from the get-go, I had about only 700 friends on Facebook. Yeah, you know, there was a huge positive response to our honest transparency. And then I was saying that, yeah, you know, we are in a bit of pickle and we really need some volunteers and helping hands to get, to get us through. So the number really have swollen up. Uh, Two-part question. A, how did the government react to this? And B, very technical, did you give your personal phone number out or email for the volunteers to contact you? Well, 
for the first question, the government did not have time to respond or to react. I made the huge mistake of including my personal phone number in the post and my phone absolutely blew up. <laughs> I did not expect such an influx of phone calls. I was expecting that maybe 10 of my friends uh -huh. or acquaintances would give me a call and maybe show up to help. So I confidently included my personal number. But then I got this unbelievable amount of phone calls and I decided that I would answer every single one in one way or another. I would call people back and to this day, to my embarrassment, I still have numbers saved as volunteer number 128 because I quickly jotted them down so as not to lose track of anyone. And I would just keep picking up the phone one after another, but this way at least I knew that I answered the ones that I did. And I definitely believe that answering a phone call is a lot more personal than just responding over an email. How many patients can your hospital hold? What's the daily capacity? We had around 300 hospitalizations per day. We had so many patients that we couldn't properly process everyone. We had ambulances lined up. And at one point, we had to close the gates and not let any more people in because we were filled to capacity and physically did not have any more space. Our normal capacity is 1,000 beds, but due to COVID, we were limited to hold 250. And we accepted 300 patients per day because of the flexible nature of the hospital layout. And what did you understand of the virus in those first few months? We didn't know anything about the virus at the time. We knew that it was a contagious and pretty dangerous, but we had no idea how to treat it and how long one should be hospitalized. We didn't know the prognosis. It was a unique and intense beginning. We were using an anti-malaria medication, which we attempted to use cohesively with other medications. But then we completely got rid of this method because it wasn't effective. How did you expand your knowledge about the virus? Were you working with colleagues or did you do your own research? Uh, we looked to China and Europe, which were hit with a pandemic outbreak earlier. Uh -huh. We were quite lucky that we were one of the last countries to get hit by the virus. So we were able to ride off of some of their research. And our brain center acted very wisely in how the therapists and pulmonologists read absolutely every single piece of international material that came out about the virus. They translated what they learned into our approach and gave recommendations to all those who were interested in working with the virus. And this was honestly extremely beneficial. And, and how many months did that process take before you felt like you got a good understanding of the virus? We still don't fully understand exactly what it is, but we did have a working scheme that developed rather quickly. We started working with hormones that were pretty effective, and we were able to develop a system that more or less worked against the virus. Did you experience fear when you were stationed in, in what you've described as the red zone? of the hospital? Actually, no. You know, it's amazing, but you can actually feel that rush not to upset the patients, but it felt like you were part of history, something new and exciting. There wasn't really a fear that I would get sick because, first of all, you're always 
telling yourself that it won't affect you. And second of all, we're all pretty careful in our precautionary measures. But there was no crippling fear that made you say, oh, no, I'm not doing this. But some of us wrapped ourselves in scotch tape so that nothing would be able to seep through. Were you uh, previously in your career faced with a death toll? Anything similar to what you experienced with the virus? I have never encountered such a high death count in my career prior to this. The number of deaths was immense and it gave off the impression that everything you do is pointless because people are still dying. And then into this whole environment, you bring in the volunteers. And so how did that change the the dynamic? Well, what happened next was that 700 people, volunteers, showed up in the next week. (laughs) And I had absolutely no idea what to do with them because during the process, it turned out that we really don't know how to occupy them. them. And we also had no idea how to set goals for people who haven't worked in a hospital setting. The request went something like, please send us 20 people for 24-hour shifts, to which I would ask, what are we going to do with them? Staff would respond with, well, we'll figure something out. But that's just not how you treat volunteers, because they quickly burn out, lose interest, and leave. Thankfully, we had a staff member who worked for a nonprofit And so she knew how to deal with volunteers and how they could be structured. She immediately offloaded my phone by creating a Google form to which any person willing to volunteer could sign up to. We started to require the departments that needed the volunteers to be very specific and clear about what they needed to be helped with. And what did they actually do? They switched furniture around, they cooked, they helped unload trucks with supplies and blankets and foods and antiseptics and protection. They helped us with paperwork and tallies filling, which was a great help because a lot of us medical people have no interest or knowledge in that sort of thing. And because these volunteers came from different professional backgrounds, they were able to apply themselves in different ways, which was brilliant. And you mentioned that the volunteers also observed a bit how the system worked. Can you tell me a little bit about how the presence of the volunteers changed your procedures and workflow? Yes. We had a person from telecom who came and created a schedule that helped us to be more efficient with how we arranged our volunteers. Uh He also took a look at the logistics of how we transported people from our different departments and deduced that the way we were doing it was inefficient. So he created a route that significantly increased our efficiency and overall productivity. Another volunteer came and changed how we organized our reports. We also had a person who helped organize our transportation logistics. Since outpatients had to be returned home and our hospital provided transportation, we had five cars and 70 patients got signed out each day. Hmm. We had no idea how to organize this, and I attempted to set up some transportation routes. And after about two days, I realized that I am absolutely incapable of doing this efficiently. The volunteers were also very helpful in changing the entire atmosphere of the hospital and how helpful they were to the whole process, which came to us as a surprise. It took me two months to realize that their most important assets was not that they could move around furniture, 
but the emotional support they were able to provide to the patients. Their lack of medical experience and typical patient interactions uh, was incredibly useful because they weren't desensitized to the patient's needs as most of the doctors are. They were able to see certain issues like someone who hasn't been approached or looked at and, and a lot more quickly than the medical staff. Can you give me a couple of memorable examples, concrete ones? Uh, my favorite story was about a volunteer who came up to me and asked, do you know that the people in the ER aren't eating? Why is that? To which we responded, well, I don't know. They probably just aren't hungry. The volunteer response was, no, it's because you are trying to feed them fish. What's wrong with fish? Well... It's because river fish is very bony, and even a healthy person won't pick out all those bones. It'll drive you mad. Uh. So what shall we make instead? Make cutlass meatballs. Uh. And as it turned, the patients were hungry indeed, and they happily ate the boneless cutlets that were served to them. So you receive information from the volunteers, and then I imagine that the bureaucratic nature of the hospital system required for you to approach the person in charge and tell them that although you had a plan that was in place a month prior, it had to be reconsidered due to new specifications. Was it difficult to authorize the changes, for instance, changing the fish due to the rigidity of the system, or did they respond rather quickly to the suggestions? Well, that was an easy solution because I went to the head doctor who told the chef to make the cutlets. And for about a week, her main task was to remind the chef to make cutlets instead of serving fish. That was easy. <laughs> Another great story was when the volunteers were given a general checklist and would walk around the clinic measuring temperatures and, and asking about the well-being of the patients because the doctors and nurses didn't have a sufficient amount of time to consistently check on all the patients. And they made these rounds every two hours. And this was extremely beneficial because for the first time in a year, we didn't have a single incident where a patient was found dead or accidentally died without anyone knowing. The patients also loved that they were always looked after and talked to. Right. From the what I've read in the news, the rate of decline in health can be very steep with COVID. What sort of demographic was the typical volunteer? Young, old, male, female? It was about 50-50. And they were mostly 30 years old or older. Mm -hmm. uh, there were a lot of successful, well-off people. Mm -hmm. It was such an incredible mixture of people from all walks of life. It was really charming to see how the volunteers began to develop a bit of familiarity with the patients. Because once you come up to a patient for the third time, you start to ask them something about their home life or about their interests. It becomes more personal. And in that way, we're able to fill the gap in connection between the patient and lack of attention in the hospital setting. I think from the outside perspective, the reputation of Russia right now in the West has certainly never really been lower. It's that Russians are hackers who want to steal corrupt information. But the picture you're painting doesn't really tightly coincide with that narrative. What you see as a medical professional and as a Russian citizen, the people are so eager to help. What does that tell you about the current mood of the people living in Russia? I think that people bonded over the sincerity, honesty, and faith in humanity. 
if you will, mm -hmm. and by trustworthiness. Yeah. In my opinion, we have a crisis in Russia when it comes to trusting one another. Yeah. And many people don't trust each other, nor can they communicate effectively. When the volunteers started filtering in, I told them, listen, no one is going to conduct background checks or ask for your passports here. If you came here with a desire to help, I will find something for you to do. And in that way, I showed them that I trusted them. And everyone was a little shocked because when you have 700 people barging around the doors with a desire to help, it's pretty difficult to organize. The doctors and medical staff working under the scrutiny of some strange foreign people, <laughs> uh, which is never easy. But benefit of the doubt is crucial to the well-being of the volunteers and the ability to sustain their desire to help from the heart and without the soul crushing bureaucracy. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host Matt Heslin brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. Were they shocked by this attitude? I think everyone was. Did you have any incident when somebody exploited your trust or had malicious intent? Uh, there was one incident when one journalist published a list of all the patients mm -hmm. who were lying with COVID in the hospital with their last names. Mm -hmm. But I quickly was able to find the journalist and his publication and it had been removed. Mm -hmm. Openness seems to be a lot more effective than a closed-off system. I believe that there are more good people than bad, especially in the time of a crisis or of a critical situation. It sounds to me hearing this, that there's a deep desire in Russia to be more transparent, open and free than it is. Maybe it's my imagination, but it sounds like your experience accentuates this. How did the government and authorities react to your experiment? Uh, At first, the government tried to unite our volunteers with their organization of volunteers. They also had an awesome group of people who created this volunteer program, but they basically forced students into that volunteering program by giving them offers that they could refuse. Like for example, they had universities require volunteer hours in order to obtain a diploma. And so obviously the students had to participate in the government's volunteer program. And the fact that you wholeheartedly stated that, listen, we don't have enough helping hands we're having a difficult time. The government did not respond to this negatively and say that they were reflecting a weakness of the system. Uh, the government was quite adequate in their response and they weren't re regulating any of our actions in terms of the volunteers. We had more issues with the commentaries about the volunteers uh -huh. that the journalists produced. Uh -huh. But even though we were transparent, there were a couple of instances where the higher-ups 
would scold us for some information that would come out even though we didn't know that this information was coming out. It was all just a few journalists causing a ruckus and it was usually resolved by the head doctor of the hospital. Let's turn to the future here. What's your assessment of what's going to happen uh, in the future, both in terms of trust in the government and also the disease, vaccination? Why are vaccination rates so low in Russia? Well, it's just difficult for people to understand why the entire world is having a difficult time receiving the vaccine. But in Russia, it is readily available in every corner, and it's also free. And from the government, it comes. So it's very suspicious to the people. Meaning that if you give the vaccine away for free, that actually increases the suspicion. Right. So you think if it were expensive, that people would get more vaccination? We have three available vaccines. One of them is COVID-Vac, which uh, doesn't have any research publications of proof or of effectiveness, but it is being developed by the right people at the right institute. And people are running around trying to find this vaccine as if it were the holy grail. <laughs> For some reason, people want this vaccine, probably because it is inaccessible and exclusively difficult to find. And they only just started testing the vaccine on animals even though it's been out for a year and a half. Uh-huh. But Sputnik, which is well-researched, but had poorly published data, regardless of this, is very clearly effective against the virus because a good amount of people were vaccinated with Sputnik and it really puts a halt on the rate of infection and death rate. But no one is interested in getting jabbed with Sputnik because it's official and available. Only 53% are fully vaccinated as of this recording in the United States, despite the huge accessibility of getting vaccinated. As a doctor, how do you differentiate between the different vaccines, American, Chinese, et cetera? I focus on reading existing publications. I'm interested in seeing how many people participated in trials and what the results were. Uh What do the results look like? What information is accessible from these trials? How was the vaccine developed? Uh I take all these factors into consideration and take it from there. Do you have any personal advice to listeners about the vaccines? If there is a registered vaccine, I use it. Doesn't matter which one it is. Uh If you have the opportunity to choose from a few options, Well, how can you choose between something that you know nothing about in terms of immunology and so on? Uh, Literally just do it, whichever one is accessible to you, unless there are some horrible known side effects that could pertain to you. The latest American information about the Delta variant is quite negative. Various states are reporting massive spikes. What do you think the future for Russia looks like in regards to the Delta variant? I'm not sure when our lives will be back to normal, but the correlation is clear that the more people get vaccinated, the less variants will there be. How the virus will develop further is hard to tell, but it is considered that every new variant is more contagious, but less lethal or dangerous, because the virus's job is not to kill us as its host immediately, but to be able to reproduce as many copies as possible. But I'm hoping that come March, we will be able to persevere. So the podcast is called Things I Didn't Learn in School, sort of the important life lessons that one is able to take away from life experience. 
What would you take away from your experience with COVID? A big lesson I took away from all of this is that if you need help, just ask. And that help can come from the most unexpected people or places. I couldn't even imagine that diehard football fans would be willing to run around helping grandmas. It taught me not to be snobby and elitist and that most people are good people regardless of their professional interests. How do Russians perceive Americans right now in terms of overall their approach to COVID? We mostly get our information from colleagues in New York and LA. And many people were honest about how bad things were and how staff in the US were using garbage bags instead of medical gear because there were shortages. And this gave you the feeling of pride that, oh, finally, we, Russia, are doing something right and tackling this problem effectively. But then you stop to think about it and you come to realize that it's only at the hospital that you are working at uh, that is so stuffed and full of supplies. But if you drive out 100 kilometers out of Moscow, the situation is significantly worse and they don't even have garbage bag to uh, repurpose into gear. I think that in terms of this pandemic, we are quite similarly prepared in terms of how we are dealing with the virus as the Americans. I think that Americans have a little bit more trust in their medical systems than Russians do. Unfortunately, no one prioritizes teaching bedside manners here in Russia. So the approach to patients from the doctors could be quite severe and the patient-doctor relationship tend to be rocky. It's what in the U.S. they call uh, emotional intelligence. Did the lawyers at your hospital have any concerns about you opening up your hospital to volunteers? We didn't ask the lawyers. <laughs> uh, when we went to bring in the lawyers, it was too late. Everything was already working, and the volunteers were such a huge help. Thank you so much, Sasha Vanyakov, for spending time to describe to us your experience with the volunteers. Thank you. And thank you, Yuri, for helping translate this and bring this to a much broader audience. You're welcome. Thank you. Today's podcast was produced and edited by Dave Manahan.